Let's open our Bibles to the New Testament, to the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We've been looking at a paragraph for four weeks now in the season of Advent to answer the question, what child is this? And we find that God's word, the inspired words of the Bible, answer that question for us. As you're turning to Colossians 1, let me welcome those who may be watching our live stream or watching the video uh, later on. We uh, uh, appreciate the technology helping us connect, but we invite you to join with us and perhaps come on Christmas Eve uh, for our 6 p.m. service. Let me read God's word and then unfold it to you. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless it to all who hear believe and obey. Amen. Amen. He is the prince of peace. He is the peacemaker. It comes out in verse 20 of our text this morning. At Christmas season, I'm sure many of you are receiving uh, greeting cards, and sometimes those greeting cards come with a little newsletter inside. More often than not, I'm just seeing pictures, you know, the the picture card. And that's a wonderful gift to send someone, uh, a connection uh, with a friendship from the past. I got one from uh, some uh, folks that are a little bit older, and it's them, and then pictures of their grandchildren on the card. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Sometimes in those newsletters, you see the news, how, how difficult we've had it, but we've gotten through it. This is what happened, and... We're looking forward to better things in the coming year. Those newsy tidbits as they come. And, and you think of that family and your family and how good it is to catch up on news and to hear plans and hopes. I remember sending out uh, a card. It wasn't a Christmas card. It was a birth announcement for our first son. And uh, it's great to, to have a firstborn child and you get a little bit over the top with what you do. I sent out a birth announcement that February that looked like the podium from the White House. And it said, announcing a future president of the United States. <laughs> yeah, a healthy baby boy. We like to share our news. And we like to forecast our hopes and plans. A lot of people that send Christmas cards or exchange greetings are just practicing wishful thinking. But believers who know God and know his plans for this world can do more than wish and hope or dream. We can plan because God will keep his promises. 
There was a great announcement of a birth many years ago. In the Old Testament, there are several scriptures, including Isaiah chapter 9, which talked about the Messiah's birth. The Messiah would arrive in the world. And those words from Isaiah 9, verse 6, included four titles for our Lord. For unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given, who would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, And the climactic title for the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Now, that's setting expectations about as high as they can get. The one who would come would be a mighty God. The the everlasting, the divine Father would be present with us. and, 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 And the counselor with wondrous wisdom from heaven itself would be ours. And he would be the prince, the ruler, the maker of peace. Amazing prediction fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That's why this child is so important. He is God and he is on God's mission. He is God's gift. And he is the prince of peace. Paul, when he wrote to that ancient church of Christians, this letter that we've been looking at, he did describe Jesus as God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He was creator and all things were created by him. And, Paul writes, maybe he underlined this part, and things were created for him. What child is this? This is Emmanuel, God with us. And this morning, when Paul gets to the end of this paragraph and answering who this child is, he said, through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This morning, we want to talk about that peace. Last Sunday, we talked about the crucifixion, the cross, the price that was paid, how the peace was earned this morning we look at the peace and the peacemaker. Let's ask three questions. First, who is this Prince of Peace? Who is this Prince of Peace? And secondly, we'll ask, what is this peace that he brings? And thirdly, how do we experience that peace? Just very simply looking at God's word because God wants us to know the answers to these things. And today... As a preacher of the gospel ordained to gospel ministry, I declare to you that you can have that peace of God today. It can be yours. Who is this Prince of Peace? Well, the first thing I want to point out, as the Bible itself does, he is the prophesied one. The prophets of old. In fact, the whole of the Old Testament points to this baby. The whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus and in the fullness of time God sent his son and specific prophecies talked about his regal status prince king and his role in bringing peace there's so many there's hundreds of prophecies in the old testament about Jesus but let's just highlight a couple about his role as prince of peace so let's start in genesis genesis 49 verse 10 and we're going quickly i don't know if you'll get to genesis 
49.10 before we're done uh, with Genesis 49.10. In the Old Testament, the book of Genesis sets many things uh, uh, into motion. Uh, The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had all those sons. And as he's blessing his sons and imparts his patriarchal blessing to his son Judah, there's language here that begins to identify Judah as the one son who will carry the line of promised Messiah forward. The line of Judah, and from that line eventually there'd be a man named Jesse who had a son named David, and you can see historically, genealogically how it goes. But in that blessing, in Genesis 49 verse 10, we read these words. And this is the ESV version. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And if you have an ESV and you see the word tribute there, you also see that there's a footnote that it could also be understood or read as the word Shiloh, which is what I would prefer. Because that's the word referencing peace. The words in the Old Testament are very similar. And some of the manuscripts, I think, lean towards Shiloh. Which would be a reference to both scepter, rule as prince, and the bringing of peace. If you're looking ahead to that messianic figure, while he was yet a promise, these two images begin to emerge. Turn with me to Isaiah. And we'll stay in Isaiah for a few references uh, for sake of time. Isaiah 9, 6, which we just alluded to. Let's read that out again. Um, as the prophet, the great uh, Isaiah, spoke so clearly of one who would be born in uh, Galilee in the, in, and live in the land of the Gentiles. Um, 4, verse 6, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How clear. Does it describe the Messiah who would be born, who would enter the world as a son, a faithful son, undo what Adam did wrong, and gather together a people? The prophesied one, these four titles, and the climactic title. I hope you ponder that, especially Christians who have known this passage for a while. Isn't it interesting? You would think that one of the other titles might be larger. Prince sounds like a secondary role, doesn't it? But ponder this, that Prince of Peace is the climax of that list. And he doubles down as he describes in verse 7 that the increase of his government, his reign, his rule the exercise of his scepter, and of peace will not end. We're not just studying history today, my friends. We are studying the work of the Prince of Peace, which continues even today in December 2021 in Saratoga County, New York. The Prince of Peace is at work. There will be no end to his work and to his reign. 
And one day, whether willingly or otherwise, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. Other references in Isaiah include Isaiah 11. We'll just move quickly through. Isaiah 11 talks about a righteous branch, uh, starting with uh, tree imagery, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. But the language, as you move on uh, in verses 6 through 9, talk about a time of peace. The lion shall dwell with the lamb. Excuse me, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Hang on a second. That sounds like a very peaceful picture. The cow and the bear shall graze, and the young shall lie down together. That's a picture of peace. In verse 9, it mentions, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's plan in the fullness of time under Christ is to rule and bring peace. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more tears, be no more strife. Prophecy about peace. Two more in Isaiah. Isaiah 32, verse 11. Isaiah 32, I guess it's verse 1, and then a couple other verses. Uh, Isaiah 32 is talking about a king. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. That's prophetic about the Messiah, the one in the line of David. And then down in verses 16, 17, 18, it describes that king reigning in righteousness. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. When the king of peace, when the prince of peace comes and makes peace between man and God, those effects are ours to inherit. Quietness. And trust, tranquility, that's the picture of our salvation. That's the picture of our present reality and our future hope in Christ. And there's a further reference in Isaiah 54, verse 10. That'll be our last. Most of us know Isaiah 53. We read that at Good Friday, how Christ was wounded and bruised and died for us. Isaiah 54 kind of continues summarizing the the saving work and the covenant work of our Messiah. 54.10 says this, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. These prophecies point to God's rule through a king with his own scepter who will come and begin changing things. He will begin corralling the people for himself and he will rule them and provide for them peace. How we would long for such human leaders who can better provide peace for our people. But trust not in princes of this world. Trust in the Prince of Peace, the prophesied one. Let's go back to the New Testament, to our passage that we're looking at 
this paragraph in Colossians, one that describes Jesus and answers the question, what child is this? In verse 20, it said he would be making peace by the blood of his cross. Interesting expression, isn't it? That word for making peace isn't simply the words making and peace like we would do it too in English. It's one word. It's the word peace turned into a verb as in peacemaker. And he would be the peacemaker. That's who this Prince of Peace is. And that's the emphasis behind the word prince in the prophecy. And, and maybe you haven't connected those dots. Why, why wasn't he called the messenger of peace or delivery man of peace? The prince makes things happen. At the word of the prince, at the conquest of the prince, he makes it so. I would suggest that you could think of the title from Isaiah, Prince of Peace, as maker of peace. And here in Colossians 1 verse 20, that's what it says. Jesus is making peace. You can't make peace. Jesus can. We can send our best ambassadors overseas to try to prevent war. We can negotiate treaties. But we can't make peace. I mean, Great Britain understood that just at the outbreak of World War II. They tried to negotiate a peace and it failed miserably because of who they were dealing with. Here the Bible tells us that Jesus is a maker of peace. He's a doer. He gets it done. He makes the peace. Let's look at a passage parallel to this in Ephesians 2 that explains how this works. Ephesians and Colossians are very similar uh, uh, letters. They have similar themes and content. And where we have this one reference in verse 20, um, Ephesians chapter 2 spells it out just a little bit more fully with some more language. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. This is God's word to help us understand the peacemaking power of Jesus Verse 14, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Let me pause. Verses 14 and 15 are talking about Jews and Gentiles no longer being separated by kosher laws and all the other laws. Christ does away with that and creates one new man called Christian. So there's peace on the horizontal. That's exciting news. He is our peace. But it goes on. Verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's talking about vertical peace in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus came and by his death, by his life, by his teaching, and by his conquest over sin and death can conquer sinful hearts and bring about peace among men look around the room we're not all physically related but we can be related in christ and in our diversity 
in Christ we can have peaceful fellowship. The church of Jesus Christ in the earliest centuries shocked the world as people from different social classes and ethnic backgrounds became one body in Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's the horizontal peace Christ makes. But he also, most importantly, makes a vertical peace. Peace with God. He removes the hostility. What hostility, might you ask? Well, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've incurred sin. And we can't get out of our predicament. We're in rebellion to our maker. And even though we feel sorry, we feel convicted, we feel guilty. And those are all appropriate when you understand how much you've broken God's law and offended him. You can't undo that. But Christ can and did. By being a substitute, taking the punishment due your sin. And enabling God to look on you, to see your sin justly punished, to see the righteousness of Christ freely robing you, covering you, and God adopts you into his family. You become a child of God through the new birth, through your Christian conversion. Christ makes peace on the vertical and on the horizontal. And there's no one like that in the history of humanity. He is the peacemaker. I enjoyed reading some essays by Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, one of the great Princeton theologians uh, of America's past. And he, he made a very uh, astute comment that I think is, is timeless. He says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, Christianity does not cry peace, peace, where there is no peace. Christianity does not present God only as love, as if to say, don't worry, be happy. Rather, he says, Christianity comes recognizing the enmity and hostility and laying an adequate foundation for peace. Christianity makes peace between us and God. A lot of philosophies out there and a lot of greeting card theology says, oh, it's Christmas, be happy. Put a smile on, forget your troubles. Go shopping. Jesus Christ makes peace. Let that sit in your heart and mind. And if you've never thought about where to find rest for your soul, what keeps you up at night, what bothers you, whether it's your own sin and guilt or the, the, the trouble of our world, pause and consider that Christ can bring peace to you today. One other descriptor who is this Prince of Peace, he is the permanent Prince of Peace. I'm simply going to remind you what it said in Isaiah 9 verse 7, uh, from this time forth and forevermore. There's no stopping this. The story of Jesus did not end back in the, the first century. And there were some disciples there and, and it's up to us now to, to do our best. No, Jesus is alive and continues to make peace, to meet people to heal people, to confront people. Jesus is at work by his spirit. He is still the Prince of Peace. Our second big heading this morning is, what is this peace that he brings? Let's describe the peace in case you haven't gotten a handle on it yet. The first thing I want to say, it's matchless. 
It's matchless. And I, I like that word because it, what does it mean? Without match, without compare. Something that is matchless is, is, is pretty unique. The peace that he brings is peace from God, peace of God, peace with God. The world has simpler views of peace, and typically in the world it means the cessation of hostilities. In Ukraine right now there's peace, but there's mounting tension. And if hostilities break out, there will be no peace. So that's, peace is usually the absence of war. Where people call a truce and stop fighting. But they still sulk around the house. I think it was Dr. E.J. Young who said, The cessation of warfare itself does not bring about the desired condition of peace. The peace that he brings is matchless and it mends, M-E-N-D-S, like to sow, to fix, to mend. And here I'm thinking of uh, the restoration, the removal of the hostility and the change it brings about. Notice how our text, Colossians 1 verse 20, says that in Christ we are reconciled. That's the word that that opens the doorway for this making peace. There's a reconciliation on the cross. There is not only a removal of the enmity, the, the taking away of the guilt and shame, the pain, the price, but there's a bestowment of love. It's not like a a fender bender where you exchange information, go your ways, and know that your car is going to get fixed by the insurance companies, and it'll get. No, there's, there's a friendship now between the parties involved. There's a reconciliation. There's a, a, a rejoining of what had been broken by the hostility. Yes, I tried to put down this piece in one sentence, so this is my effort. The result of the mending. This peace of God is a restored relationship with God and the tranquil spiritual well-being it imparts to the soul. What is the peace that Christ brings? It is a restored relationship with God and, I like this word, tranquil, well-being it imparts to the soul. It's a a spiritual tranquility. You can be adrift at sea, you can be in the unemployment line, you can be in the ER and still have peace with God. And your soul is secure. I saw a testimony in the news the other day of a young girl whose dad was a police officer and he was shot and killed in the line of duty. And she went on how she did not hate this man but hoped someday to talk to him and tell him about Jesus. And I'm thinking, wow, she knows the Prince of Peace and she has now become a peacemaker. There's power here to make peace. Well, well, wait, you're talking about some guy who shot and killed and took away and, and did these wrongs. Well, you know, I've got news for you. What have you done to offend God? And what has he done to bring peace and to call you to himself? We need to understand that Jesus left his throne above, not counting equality with God, something to be grasped, and emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant to accomplish this peace it's a peace that mends it brings us 
to calmer waters inside. He leads me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. That's the work of Jesus, the peacemaker, the mender. The evangelist John Blanchard said, the peace of God means being grateful for his past mercies, being conscious of his present mercies, and being certain of his future mercies. I would say further, his peace is mighty. I I, I really think the Bible needs needs to be brought forward here to confront our sense that this peace is somehow passive. It's like an insurance policy or something detached. No, it's powerful and it's at work. Here we want to turn over to the New Testament letter to the Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7. Just a page or two away. Philippians 4 verse 7. Philippians comes right before Colossians. Philippian talks about joy quite a bit, and it encourages people to rejoice in the Lord and to pray. In Philippians 4, let me begin in verse 6. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's prayer. And you can only pray if you've been reconciled to God and you've got that relationship, because Christ has reconciled you. So if you have that relationship, if you're a Christian and you're at peace with God, but you're troubled and anxious, you can pray. And verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is power in the peace of God. It's not just Christmas decoration. It's not just tinsel. There's power here. Power to subdue your anxious thoughts. Power to put an end to that strife. The work of Jesus. The peace of God is mighty. This word here, uh, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts. That's a military term. It will fortify. It will protect. It is armed and ready. It's powerful. The peace of God. It's a powerful thing. Well, let me pause and ask, what do we need guarding from? I was reading the Baptist pastor theologian, Andrew Fuller, who should be more widely known. He's a stellar theologian, Andrew Fuller. He's friends with William Carey. Andrew Fuller asked that very question. What is it that we need protection from? What, what do we need this peace to do for us? How, how does it need to guard our hearts and our minds? Well, he listed a few things. For instance, he said uh, it, it guards us uh, from persecution and, and the weakness and fear that comes from physical persecution for our faith. And he says, you know, most of us in England, this was 1700s, are not being persecuted for our faith. And that's probably true for us when we look at what other Christians have faced. So we can have that protection. When we look at the church behind the Iron Curtain, the church in North Korea, the church in China, in difficult places in the Middle East, those Christians appreciate the the keeping power of the peace of God. But Andrew Fuller further speculates that the peace of God can fortify us against the temptation of allurements. Good word there. 
The world is filled with allurements. You can see allurements on not only on TV commercials and in magazines, but now they come to your phone and they ding, ding. They want your attention. Ding, ding. Black Friday. They're ding, ding. Only for you. What are the allurements of the world? The things that would want your affection and attention, that would want you to invest your wealth and time. They would love to become idols, but they're happy just to distract you. And the allurements of the world aren't bad things. But anything that begins to take the place of God or our duties to God are not pleasing to God. So the peace of God can help protect us and fortify us from the allurements of the world. There's a biblical illustration that Andrew Fuller gave, and uh, it might be helpful for you to remember this point. He said, remember Samson in the Old Testament? When Samson was up against those Philistines in hand-to-hand combat, he was unbeatable. But how did Samson fall when he dallied with the allurements of Delilah? Christian, we need to have the peace of God fortify our hearts and minds against the allurements of our day, lest our hearts and minds stray. Proverbs 4.23 is so needed in America today. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And finally, uh, Andrew Fuller said that we need uh, protection from many of the sorrows of this world, bereavements, disappointments, so many griefs. And these are very real, and these are plenty in our lap. How does the peace of God help us when we hear somebody's in the hospital, somebody's gone on? Um, And Christmas is a very difficult time for many who are widowed or have lost relationships. The peace of God is here to help. The peace of God is here to help because your relationship with God and your knowledge of his love for you and the knowledge that he is now your pilot, your shepherd, your keeper should bring a measure of comfort that you're not alone, that you're not adrift, and that Christ comes with power to subdue the winds and waves of your heart. The peace he brings is matchless, it mends, and it is mighty, stunningly mighty. Every time you hear the word peace this week, think of power, the power of Christ. Well, how do we experience his peace? How do we experience this peace? I want some of that. How do we get it? It's very simple. And the Bible's very clear. The first thing you need to do is put your faith in Christ. You need to not only know this, but you need to commit to this. Uh, Many of you know the story of Jesus. You know church language. You know Bible lessons. But you have still kind of withheld the control of your life. And you're kind of balled up in, in self and hoping that you can cope. Jesus says, come unto me. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. You're not going to get there on your own. You're not going to deal with these things that you need the Lord Jesus. He says, come to me. 
The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be justified by faith. You need to say, I believe in this Jesus. I trust this Jesus. Lord Jesus, forgive my sins. Enter in. Be born in me today, and may I be born again. Do that which only you can do by your Spirit to bring me into new life. I'm not quite sure how babies decide what time they're going to be born. I thought our first child was coming early. In fact, once on a Sunday, we left the service because we had some Braxton Hicks contractions, only to find out, no, baby's not coming early. So we went back home. The new birth, in one sense, is out of your control. It is to be born of the Spirit of God. So don't put off, if the Spirit of God is today, this moment, calling you to repent and believe, to put your faith in Christ, to pray, Lord, I've sinned. I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I need this, Jesus, to bring peace with you and and take away my guilt and shame and, and restore my life to what it can be and should be doesn't always mean happy, wealthy, healthy life, but a life with God. You need to begin that. You need to ask and put your faith in Christ. You see, this is the way the apostles preached. It's not just something modern preachers do or say. This is what Christianity is all about. Making Christ known as Savior and Lord and inviting people to know Jesus in this way. In Acts chapter 10... Peter was preaching. Remember Peter. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. Here's a sample. Peter opened his mouth and said, you know a sermon's coming. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You must believe in him to benefit and to have this peace. Don't leave it unopened. The message has not changed and will not change. Faith in Christ. But there's other dimensions how we experience this. When we put our faith in Christ and we're born again, we're believers. And and then how does this peace flow through us? Is, Is it all automatic? Well, I wouldn't use the word automatic. I would say it is formed in us by the Holy Spirit. 
It comes first by faith in Christ, but then it's formed in us by the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, there's a list. It's kind of a spiritual list described as fruit. And it doesn't mention bananas or cherries or plums. Or what's a holiday fruit? Fruitcake? No. Um, It uses that language, fruit of the Spirit, not to talk about fruit, but to say this is what is produced by something, like a tree that bears fruit. It tells us that one of the fruit of the Spirit is peace. You know the list, Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It's in the top three. It's beautiful. Peace, and it goes on. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When the Spirit of God resides in a believer, this fruit begins to grow. So if you pray and, and plead and come to Christ even today, make sure you watch for the spiritual fruit to grow. It doesn't mean instantly you don't have those worries or concerns, but they are edged out as the spiritual fruit begins to grow. It's a supernatural activity. Faith in Christ, formed by the Holy Spirit. But then this third concept I want to make clear It flows to us and we need to pursue it. So the third word here is flows to us. And the flow, not to get too theological or technical, it flows from the objective truth of peace. I have peace with God. I experience that peace. The subjective experience flows from the objective truth. Let me repeat that. If you are Christian, you are forgiven and you are justified before God. Boom. You are right with God. You have peace with God, period. But your experience of that, the subjective experience, you know it and you're enjoying it, flows from that truth. So what we have to do constantly is look to the objective truth. I am saved. I'm in Christ. God doesn't have anything against me anymore. And now I can be at peace. We need to... Let that flow from the objective truth into our experience. A contemporary writer named Justin uh, Dillahy in an Advent devotional this year said, um, this peace, this, this activity doesn't make peace automatic or easy. If it did, many of the exhortations in Paul's epistles would never have been written. Remember, he says, pursue peace, strive for peace. We have to take that objective truth about Christ in us and continually apply it and remind ourselves. It gives us strength. Some author named Robert Horn said, when we lack the peace of God, we should turn to our peace with God. When you're not feeling it. Peace is the deliberate adjustment of my life to the will of God. You have to let it flow. You have to pursue it. I love what the psalmist says in my favorite psalm, 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. You know what I take away when I see that? I say, I'll have more peace if I read the Bible every day. That's what I think when I read that. And you know what? Let me ask. If, if you're 
worried and trembling and your life is a little bit in chaos, have you been reading God's word? Have you been taking the objective truth that God spoke in his word and bring it to light to get understanding? Or you've been coasting on your own. It's important to realize that's how the peace of God works. It comes and flows through his word as we attend to the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Well, on this final Sunday of Advent, we've answered the question, what child is this? Uh, He is God. He's the crucified one. He's the prince of peace. Is he your prince of peace? In closing, I need to exhort you to kneel before the Prince of Peace. We don't kneel much in churches anymore. Maybe we should. But if you've never knelt before Jesus, I pray that you do today. Having heard that he not only is peace, but he can make peace for you, come to him. Oh, Prince of Peace, take my life. Give me the new birth. Give me this peace. As Dr. E.J. Young simply said, if you would have peace, it is to him you must go. The living Lord Jesus Christ. Kneel, confess, believe. The second exhortation is to to walk in the well-being his peace provides, to to, to, to enjoy it with each step you take, to walk this way. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 4? He said, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Or the converse in another psalm which says, the watchman stay, you know, you stay up late in vain. Uh, 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 trying to, to cover all. You have to entrust yourself to the Lord. You have to walk in light of this peace. Or I like the hymn lyrics. I won't sing them, but you know them. Stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. Finding as he promised. Perfect peace and rest. When we sing that, that's true. Walk in the well-being he provides. Here's a tidbit for thought here. You know the gospel armor in Ephesians 6? Uh, Peace is one of the gospel armor pieces, but do you remember which one? The shoes of the gospel of peace. Interesting that the, the most foundational part of that armor for our spiritual warfare when times are rough and there's danger is there's gospel peace under your feet, so to speak. Which makes me think that we need to walk knowing that we are at peace with God. And finally, we need to work. We need to work to be peacemakers as well. The word that described Jesus in this text, making peace by the blood of his cross, that verb, peacemaker, is only used one other place in the Bible. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Will you be a peacemaker knowing what Christ has done for you? Will you tell others? Will you work with unbelievers? You've heard that uh, expression using the word K-N-O-W. No Jesus and no peace. Or the converse using the word N-O. 
No Jesus, no peace. We need to tell others. So we need to be peacemakers by being evangelists, by being witnesses and sharing. We also need to be peacemakers even in the body of Christ, among our fellow believers. You know how the Bible often said, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's not a political agenda. It's saying God's at work in the world through his people. Pray that his people get along. Pray that his people remind themselves what really matters and what's at stake in who we are and how we behave. Be a peacemaker this week among the people of God. Pay a price to bring about peace between brothers and sisters in Christ. I know it's slow in coming. Justin Dillahay said as well, God is already restoring peace on earth in some measure. It is the good people of God with whom he is well pleased. There is this group. The Bible tells us with whom he is well pleased. The church and all who by faith have embraced the Prince of Peace as their savior. And though ultimate peace awaits its consummation, he writes, we see tiny previews of it every time we forgive one another or every time the church baptizes a new convert or every time we commune around the Lord's table, we experience his peace. May God spread his peace far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this child, this Savior, this God-man, Jesus Christ, this peacemaker, the Prince of Peace. May your peace powerfully work in us and through us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.